Please take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 2. And as is our custom, if you're willing and able, will you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? I'll let Ernie's full reading of the passage stand for our context. And I'll read again verses 15 and 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law... No one will be justified. We pray with me. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So listen and see if you've heard any of these quotes before, and if you have, if you know where they come from. Do this and live. What must we be doing to do the works of God? What must I do to inherit eternal life? God helps those who help themselves. You are saved by grace after doing all that you can. The first three of those are from Scripture, two of those being questions that were asked of Jesus during his earthly ministry. The quote about God helping those who help themselves is common folk wisdom, but it's often confused uh, for being a Bible verse, even though it's not in Scripture. And that last quote is a twisting of the truth of Scripture that's found in the Book of Mormon. And yet, all of those have one thing in common. They show us how easy it is for us to look to our actions, to our works, and to our efforts for our standing before our Creator. The book of Galatians is written because it's so difficult for our human hearts and minds to understand and to accept the difference between the law and the gospel. We are always looking for a way to earn God's blessing and salvation. Our default setting is the covenant of works. And so when we wrestle with the ultimate questions of how to be right with God, our natural inclination, even for those of us who are Christians, is to pull out a measuring rod to see how we or others stand in relation to our preferred rules. This distinction between law and gospel is so difficult, yet vital, that Martin Luther once said something to the effect that if someone rightly distinguishes between the two, We should all submit ourselves to their teaching and give them an honorary doctorate. In our passage tonight, we're presented once again with the difficulty and yet the necessity of making that distinction correctly. In our passage, Paul's concluding his biographical sketch of his calling as an apostle of Christ, of his training in the gospel of Christ, of his preaching of freedom and forgiveness through the work of And in the name of Christ, he's emphasized over and over again that his entire ministry is centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. From verse 11 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, he's been laying the groundwork of his credibility and his authority to speak on behalf of Christ. And in our passage tonight, he gives one more example of the centrality and the power of that message 
before he pivots to the meat of his argument about what the gospel is and why it's so devastating that the Galatian church has turned their back on it. The second half of Galatians 2 is the transition point of this book. And in it, Paul gives a picture of the consequences of not understanding the roles of the law and the gospel when it comes to our justification. And then he begins a master class that continues through the rest of the book uh, that teaches us how to understand and then apply the law and the gospel as we submit to the whole counsel of God. I've provided an outline to follow along with two headings that will organize our thoughts. So for verses 11 through 14, we'll look at the Judaizer's fallacy, or the law. And then verses 15 through 21, the justification by faith, the gospel. And if you remember from our study of Ephesians, unity in the church is fundamental for Paul. It's a central theme of the gospel. It is part of the very mission of Christ to tear down the dividing wall that stood between the Jew and the Gentile. And establish in his body one church made up from those of every tribe, language, and nation. So when Paul sees that Peter is undermining the gospel by refusing to associate publicly with the Gentiles, Paul can't hold himself back. And lest we think that Paul is overreacting in his rebuke, we should remember that while Peter was a hothead, Paul himself acknowledges his own meek demeanor. Paul's not prone to quarrels. He even says in 2 Corinthians that in person he speaks meekly, differently from how he often writes. Paul's not out constantly seeking a fight. In fact, in his letter to Timothy, he gives the qualifications of those who seek the office of elder, one of which is it must be a man who is not quarrelsome. And I want us to be very clear on what Paul is not doing when he confronts Peter, lest we see him as the patron saint of debate. And we look to emulate his interaction with Peter on a weekly basis. Because we live in an age of inflammatory rhetoric, and it's fueled especially by the anonymity we think we have from online discussion. Because of that, there's many who, under the guise of zeal for the truth, seek conflict. And they're constantly drawing up battle lines. This past week, I read uh, an insightful short post by Pastor Kevin DeYoung on quarrelsome people. And he gave several markers of what a quarrelsome person looks like. And one of them stood out to me. He says, something is wrong if someone is always in the trenches with hand grenades strapped to their chest. But they're never in the cafeteria with ice cream and ping pong. So, if we're always seeking a battle, we're not attaining to Christian maturity. In fact, Solomon teaches us... The Lord hates one who sows discord among brothers. But there's also those of us who would never instigate or really even participate in these types of battles. But when we see the troops mustering, we grab our popcorn and our stadium seats. We get ready to root on our champions, hanging on every verbal jab and parry. That type of bloodthirstiness is antithetical to the unity brought by the gospel. So if you're always ready and overjoyed to observe a battle, you're also not attaining to Christian maturity. But when the gospel is at stake, Paul was bold and Paul was clear. Peter's behavior betrayed a fear of man and a mixture of law and gospel in a way that put the Galatian churches in peril. 
What we need to understand is Paul's not merely criticizing Peter for the guest list for his dinner parties. In this culture, a shared meal around the table was one of the clearest signs of unity and solidarity. And we could take from Paul's words that Peter was even withdrawing from the Lord's Supper in the presence of Gentile brothers and sisters. And Paul was right to rebuke Peter because Peter knew better. Peter himself was the one who stood up in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council to remind the brothers of what he had seen at Cornelius' house. Hear what Peter said in Acts 15 when he was speaking against those who were desiring to add the ceremonial law to the gospel for the Gentiles. Peter said, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as we will. Adding a hint of law to the gospel for justification is adding arsenic to the water. It destroys the whole thing and it poisons the one who drinks it. And so Peter stood condemned, the opposite of being counted righteous. Because Peter knew the truth about external conformity. To the ceremonial law, yet he play-acted to the contrary. Because he did eat with Gentiles. He received the command to do so by revelation from the Lord Jesus. Peter knew the bond of the body exemplified at the table of the Lord. And the implication here is Peter would not even share in the very covenant table of Christ with the Gentile believers. He does the opposite of the command we find in James' own epistle. Peter's showing partiality. And so rather than being justified before man, which is what he was seeking, Peter stands condemned. Peter perfectly embodies the plight of the Galatians. Having been saved by the Spirit, he's looking to the flesh for perfection. And the hypocrisy is the worst part. Peter doesn't even try to keep the laws in private. At home, he lives like a Gentile. Embracing the freedom he has in Christ. And let's be honest, if you've never had a bacon cheeseburger, and Jesus shows up and tells you it's okay to eat a bacon cheeseburger, and you try a bacon cheeseburger, and your eyes are open to the God's good gifts, you're not going to stop eating bacon cheeseburgers. But Peter's greater sin is, when the Jewish brothers aren't around, he's fine with the bacon cheeseburgers. But in public, he ensures he's only seen with the right Jewish people. In the right Jewish places, doing the right Jewish things. He's living like a perfect Pharisee, living for justification in the sight of men. How little he had learned from his rabbi. And this is why the action warranted public rebuke. Peter's fake righteousness was for public consumption. Therefore, the confrontation deserved to be public. And the hypocritical nature belied the true problem. Peter was loving himself and using others as a mean to the ends of his own pride and self-righteousness. Peter was not, like Paul writes elsewhere, becoming all things to all people that by all means he might save some. Rather than become the servant of all, Peter was making servants of all. He allowed the proud Judaizers To remain in bondage to the law for their right standing before God. He was subjecting the Gentiles to the yoke that even the Jews couldn't bear. 
all the while breaking those laws privately, but enslaving himself to the judgment of others through his ostentatious display of separation from the Gentiles in public. Peter was holding on to the types and the shadows of the ceremonial law, which should have faded away when the fullness of Christ came. At the same time, Peter was violating the moral law. He failed to love God and his neighbor. In Peter's desire to stand justified by keeping the law, he became a lawbreaker. And so he deserved condemnation. And that's the end result of all self-justification efforts. But this division was not merely a danger to Peter himself. He had persuaded even Barnabas. Barnabas, who traveled with Paul, preaching to get Gentiles, ministering to the Gentile brothers. If legalism could lead even an apostle astray, we must be on guard at all times against this danger. Through Peter's actions, the ceremonial law, the law which was only ever meant to point God's people to their need for salvation through a perfect mediator, this law became a wedge, pushing apart what Christ had joined together in his body in direct contradiction of the judgment of the officers of the church in Acts 15, in direct contradiction of the gospel the Jerusalem council sent Paul to preach, and in direct contradiction of the words of Jesus himself. And Paul was having none of it. Because what seemed like well-intentioned obedience on the part of Peter was actually a full frontal assault on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in effect, Peter, along with the other Jews in the church at Antioch, was taking it upon himself to decide who was worthy of fellowship and who wasn't based on his own standard. We have no individual right to excommunicate anybody else. That authority has been delegated to the church, which is ruled by our elders. You and I, individually, are not commissioned to protect the purity of this table. After all, what's offered at this table is that which makes clean. The table speaks to the purification of the impure. It's not a meal to help the strong keep up their strength. Which, by the way, is why when I finish, we confess our faith together before we take the meal together. We don't reaffirm our commitment to do better. We all respond to the word preached by saying we believe the truth of what God's word says. We place our trust in Jesus, who is our only hope. Standing in communion with the church through the ages, spread across the earth today. And with each other in this very same room. And that faith in Christ and not the law of God is what binds us together and bids us to share a meal together. After all, the law already binds all of mankind together. We're all lawbreakers condemned by it. But only the gospel of Jesus Christ can create fellowship under grace. Any attempt to divide the church... Or to, or to divide the table along lines of ethnicity, tradition, language, skin color, socioeconomic status, or any other man-made partition follows Peter down the road of falling out of step with the gospel. Anyone who introduces extra-biblical rules for table fellowship 
is inviting the same anathema Paul declares on those who preach another Christ and another gospel. Because a Christ that's divided along man-made lines is not the Christ who breaks down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And so it is a false Christ who cannot save. And let me quickly add that we should learn from Peter that as Christians, we should be willing to be condemned by self-righteous legalists for spending time with the wrong people. And like we heard last week, not yield even for a moment. John Warren has told a story about a family visiting a church where he and Kathy were members. And the family's first question was, what's your list? We need a list so we know what's acceptable and what's not. So we can judge ourselves and others according to it. Which shows the pride inherent in legalism, right? It assumes, oh yeah, I've got everything in here. I'm good there. What else have you got? What's more, in our culture... Those self-righteous legalists are just as likely to be those outside the visible fellowship as they are to be within. We are pressured to conform to the rules of our culture, to use the right terms, to support the right causes, to avoid the wrong controversial statements that those around us may deem harmful or hateful. We must guard against seeking the approval of critics outside the church And to disassociate ourselves from our embarrassing and uncool and uncouth brothers and sisters. Just as equally, we must guard against the temptation to live up to the never-ending lists of do's and don'ts from the legalists that sneak inside the church's walls. So, looking at the confrontation between Paul and Peter, let's think of a couple of points of application for consideration. Are there extra-biblical rules that you use to test others or draw lines for Christian fellowship? Do you withdraw or alienate or exclude or look down on those who take a different view on public policy, what they eat or drink, how they choose to educate their children based on where they live or how much money they make or what they can offer you? Do we make a point of being seen withdrawing from people or activities that we privately enjoy so we can look better to others? Whose approval are we seeking? Man's or God's? And who would we most feel ashamed to be associated with? The call for us is to repent of any law or standard that we are trusting or that we're forcing on someone else. And instead, to place our faith in Christ who died for our salvation and the salvation of all of our brothers and sisters. The call is for us to joyfully embrace the family that God has given us in his church with great love. Because it's the gospel of grace that unites all of us. So now let's turn to justification by faith. And as I do, let me just reinforce that what we're talking about tonight is of utmost importance. Our biggest problem is not how to have better relationships, not how to get get ahead at work, not how to live emotionally healthy, not how to build a just society, not how to communicate better. Those may be good things, but they are not ultimate. And honestly, you don't need Jesus to solve any of those problems. If you're looking for help with those, you're in the wrong place. 
You're probably better off Googling a TED Talk because at least the speaker would be more dynamic and coherent. No, our biggest problem is that we have sinned against a supremely holy God and we justly deserve his wrath as a result. I was starkly reminded sitting in hospice care this week with my father-in-law that the last thing he needed was direction on how to do better on all the things he had done wrong. What he needed, what we all need above all else is freedom from the guilt and shame we carry knowing we are sinners. And if all we offer is a call to try harder and do better, we're only adding to the burden that is crushing people. So if the law is of no use for us, what hope do we have? Is there any way to be right with God? In verse 15, Paul moves from pointing out Peter's personal hypocrisy to showing that believing in, by believing in Christ, the Jewish Christians were already admitting that the law was insufficient to save anyone. The Jews were God's chosen people, and yet those Jewish Christians knew they were incapable of measuring up to the law of God. They needed another way to be counted acceptable in God's sight. And in verse 16, Paul speaks three times of being declared righteous. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in, believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The first piece of good news is that we can be justified. God in his mercy has provided a way of salvation. Indeed, this was the end of the law in the first place. Not to leave us dead in our sins, but to drive us to the one who died for our sins. This word, justified, is perhaps the most important word in Christian theology. Luther called justification the article by which the faith stood or fell. Justification was the formal reason for the entire Protestant Reformation. And although its full meaning has been ignored or obscured in the modern church, it's vital to the heart of our religion. It's at the core of the gospel. So we need to understand what it is. And while justification is a very familiar and dear doctrine to many of us, I would like to define it and think through some implications from our passage on what it means that justification is by faith in Jesus Christ. So first, as to what exactly justification is, I've seen no better definition than how it's outlined in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 33. It reads, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. We could probably spend a whole sermon series on this definition alone. Justification goes beyond simple acquittal. It is being declared righteous, not merely innocent, but perfectly obedient. God is under no obligation to offer or to provide it. He does so entirely of grace and his free pleasure to do so. Justification is a judicial or a forensic term. 
It brings up the imagery of a courtroom with each individual on trial. And for those trusting in Christ, the verdict is righteous. So justification is final by its very nature. There have been debates, even in churches, uh, that lay claim to the Reformed tradition as to whether we can make a distinction between an initial type of justification and a final justification down the road. But when it comes to our standing before a righteous and a holy God, we can think of it in terms of the idea of double jeopardy in the American law system. Once someone is declared not guilty of a crime, he or she cannot be tried again for that same crime. So in the same way, for those declared righteous before God by faith, the verdict is full and it is final. After all, on the cross, the dying cry of our Savior is not, it is begun, but it is finished. There is absolutely nothing that can be added to the work of Christ to increase or to complete justification. Sinners are justified either Fully and finally for the sake of Christ, or they stand on their own and will be condemned. There is no alternative. Or think of it in accounting terms. When we're justified, God's not extending a line of credit for us to use and then somehow pay him back. Justification isn't a down payment to which we add our good works over time till we get to the full price. No, when a sinner believes in Jesus for salvation, the debt of their sin is paid in full. The obedience of Christ is credited to their account. Righteousness and eternal life is theirs, and the books are closed. Adding the law to faith for justification is like trying to reopen the books and forfeit what God has already granted. We see further, we're justified by faith. We know we're not righteous in and of ourselves. So how then can God declare us righteous without making himself to be a liar? This is only possible through the terms of covenant, with a substitute standing in the place of sinners. Romans 6 teaches us that Jesus served as a new Adam. Our first father failed in his representation of all mankind by disobeying God and bringing judgment and death. Upon us all. But Jesus stood as the head of a new covenant, and he perfectly obeyed every bit of the law, earning eternal life for those he represents. And faith is the means by which the great exchange occurs, and our sins are counted to Christ's account, while his righteousness is counted to ours. Faith requires knowing the truth of the gospel, believing the facts are true. And then resting on that truth alone for salvation. Far from a legal fiction, it's a legal reality that those who trust in Christ own every benefit that his righteous life and substitutionary death accomplished. It's not for sale. It cannot be earned. It can't be bartered for. It is offered freely as a gift. And this is why adding works to the gospel is so blasphemous. It assumes that there's something deficient in the work of the Son of God himself that we can somehow improve upon. Church, Christ's work is as perfect as possible, and justification is only available by grace through faith. As John Calvin said, we must therefore conclude that we cannot obtain righteousness by the law. 
And that if we believe we can make God our debtor, we will only provoke his wrath. The only option, he says, is to come as poor beggars that we may be justified by faith. Even more specifically, we are justified by faith in Christ. A general trust in God or a presumption of his benevolence will not do. The triune God has set forward one means of salvation, and that's by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Because no one but Jesus has condescended to man to save us. No one but Jesus has risen from the dead and defeated death. Therefore, nothing but faith in Jesus can justify sinners and give them right standing before God. We can only have what Christ offers if we will have Christ himself. And immediately, Paul anticipates the same charge that he has to answer in Romans 6. Does salvation by grace mean that Christ serves sin? Does justification apart from the law make men sinners? Does it encourage us to sin? And the answer in verse 17 is as emphatic as it possibly can be. Certainly not. The law is good because it perfectly reflects God's good nature. It's us. It's man who is bad. And the law is a mirror that shows us back our deficiencies. But the gospel does not contradict the law. But it works perfectly in tandem with it. It provides the remedy that the law reveals. The law is meant to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we die to our own efforts and live to God. If we rebuild the law as a means of salvation in order to avoid antinomianism, we're only making ourselves to be sinners all over again. Because we'll never keep that law perfectly. What's more, we would be giving the law a claim that it no longer has on us. When we place our faith in Christ... We are united in his death, and so the law is dead to us, and we are dead to it. What a freeing thought. The law of God has no claim on those who believe in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why would we ever submit ourselves again to that slavery and condemnation? We are free, and we can live freely as a result. But the freedom from the weight and the curse of the law doesn't provide us freedom to sin. And this is because of our union with Jesus. Through faith, the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ in his death and in his life. We no longer live in our dead, sinful flesh. But the life that we now have is Christ's life by his Spirit. He leads us in spiritual life through simple, ordinary means of grace. And the faith that he grants us as a gift, he tends like a loving gardener so that it grows and blossoms and produces fruit. That spiritual life cannot consistently lead us to sin. Those who are united to Christ by faith are free from sin. And so we will desire to live a life that honors him, never perfectly, but repentantly and humbly. Always seeking to grow in grace. Paul could not draw a sharper contrast. In terms of salvation, the law is meant to kill, but the gospel brings life. Why then would we turn back to the law and the death that it brings? 
If the law could accomplish the same thing as the gospel, then Christ died for no reason. There is no more blasphemous thought than that. So may we never mix the law with the gospel, but see each for the beauty that they hold as they lead us to our wonderful Savior. So here I have four quick, simple points of application. First, if you have never trusted Christ for salvation, do it now. There is no way to be justified apart from him. There is no one that's so good as to not need him. And there is no one so bad that his grace cannot save them. Second, if you're rebuilding some torn down structure as a way to add to your justification, turn away and quit wasting your efforts. The law is bondage. So don't submit yourself to it for salvation. Because in the end, it destroys the work of Christ, and it will destroy you. Third, if you are living in habitual sin, using justification by faith as an excuse, stop, repent, confess, and live out the fullness of your union with Christ. The freedom that you've been granted is real. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, but present yourself to God as one who has been brought from death to life. Sin does not have dominion over you since you're not under the law, but have been saved by grace through faith. You've been set free by the preaching of the gospel. And fourth, if you have trusted Christ alone for salvation, rest. Live joyfully in the freedom that you have been given from the law, from sin, and from death. Never lose sight that Jesus and his work is enough. He covers all your sin. He covers all your shame. And he assures us of eternal life with him. So as we close, let's look quickly again at those quotes I began with, working backwards. We're saved by grace after doing all we can. This one seems pretty easy to answer, but let me shock you by saying there's a sense in which this one's true. We are saved by grace after doing all we can. The problem is, all that we can do is make things worse. When we do all we can, we've only increased the need we have for grace. Our good deeds, apart from the Lord Jesus, are filthy rags and cannot bring us one step closer to God. So may we abandon all hope of climbing the ladder to God and instead humbly receive the salvation he freely offers. We're saved by grace despite doing all we can. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God that no man may boast. How about God helps those who help themselves? No. Indeed, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The law says, start down the road and God will help you along. But the gospel reality is that God picks up dead sinners from the side of the road breathes life into them and leads them to heaven by his spirit. God helps those who acknowledge their helplessness and cry out to him for mercy. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer to this question was so insightful. He actually doubled down on the law because only a legalist would think they could earn an inheritance. The answer is, if you want to earn eternal life, you need perfect, entire obedience, which none of us can achieve. But if you want to inherit eternal life, 
you must be an heir of God himself. And thanks be to God that by faith, as we'll see in Galatians 4 when we get there, we are made co-heirs with Christ. We inherit eternal life through the message of the gospel because Jesus earned it for us by obeying the law and granting it to us in our union with him by believing the gospel. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And here I'm cheating a little because this was a question directly to Jesus. And the gospel answer he gave would have sounded so counterintuitive. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Is it really that simple? Yes. To be doing the works of God, to be fed by the food that endures to eternal life, believe in Jesus. Do this and live. This is the command of God, and he doesn't lie. But if we hear this statement, and our response is, great, let's go, let's get to work, then we've missed the whole point. This is not a comforting word. It's meant to drive us to our knees as we realize we can't. We cannot attain perfection. As I said with the kids, we can climb Mount Everest, but we still have 200,000 more miles to go before we get to the moon. So let me be as clear as Paul. You and I will never be counted righteous before God by works of the law. But instead of the law, the gospel brings sweet comfort. We may be justified by the works Jesus Christ did under the law. He did what we never could do in ourselves by perfectly fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law. He bore in himself the curse due to the lawbreakers and died on their behalf. He voluntarily laid down his life so that all who trust in him may find life in him. And he rose from the grave, defeating death forever for those who are united to him by faith. So no, brothers and sisters, it is not do this and live. For us, the good news is that Jesus has done it all so that we might live. So then, we have the law and the gospel. Let us not use the law to divide the body that Christ has joined together through the gospel. Let us rightly divide the law from the gospel in the word and understand how both show us the glory of our Savior and drive us to him. And let us never be divided from the bond that we have with Jesus through the gospel by faith, for he is our only hope. Let's pray together. Our Lord... Your goodness and your grace is our only hope. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his work. We thank you for faith, which is a gift. Help all of us by your spirit to rest alone and be assured that Jesus' work is enough. Turn us away from everything that distracts and detracts from that and strengthen our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.